Right, you guys, this show brought to you once again by our friends at Velo Jerseys, VeloJerseys.com, commitment to design and producing the finest cycling clothing you can ride, climb, and excel in style. They've dedicated themselves to providing you with the best materials, quality, and workmanship, along with bringing back the memories of your first heroes. I have my cost jersey. I've told you about that. It's really cool. And it's soft. It feels nice on my fat upper body. Velo Jerseys moves you to create your own history. History is Velo. Velo is now. So be sure and head on over to VeloJerseys.com. Log in. Give them the little Patrick Filler, and you will get a 15% discount. Patrick Filler. When it asks you for that discount code, type that bad boy in. You're going to have yourself a really good deal. Not bad, huh? VeloJerseys.com. Thanks to them. And let's get on to the show. feeling strange this week you guys hey everybody welcome to the podcast that actually has nothing to complain about this week i don't well maybe except for e-bikes i'm pat bulger it's another episode of the pack filler podcast hi guys how's it going you getting some bike time in are you probably getting a little bit more than i am Yesterday was Mother's Day. My wife lovingly woke me up. Honey, we're out of coffee. Go get some. And I have to because, you know, it's, it's Mother's Day, so you have to do everything. Come home, brew up a pot of coffee for her and my mother-in-law. Yeah. No, really. And then I proceeded to uh, be ordered to spend the day doing yard work. No bike time, no riding time. You know, and I guess that's fair. The yard really needed it. We did all kinds of stuff back there. Got everything done. It's looking better. It's nice when you have a clean yard or a halfway decent yard, right? When you go back there and you look back there and you think, God, we're just a few parked cars short of being complete white trash. That's It's hard to live your life knowing that you've got such a crap hole for a backyard. And I would go out for, you know, three, four hour rides and you know, as I'm leaving going, God, I really should weed that flower bed when I get home. And then I don't because I'm too tired. So my wife pulled the Mother's Day card and justifiably so. By the way, it's a hell of a workout. My back and shoulders killing me. Just moving dirt around. <laughs> so hopefully I'll be able to get back on, do some training here. And I know, I know there was a week gap between shows. You guys have all let me know that. You let me know that there's an expectation to get regularly scheduled shows out you, out to you. I'm like your dealer here. I gave you the first ones for free, and now that you're hooked, yeah, I got to keep the fix coming, right? <laughs> I, I, most of them were friendly-based emails. Thank you for those. The ones who are saying, hey, you know, are, are you okay? Is there something going on? We're concerned, those kind of things. And then there are a couple of blunt ones like, you know, hey, asshole, you made a promise. So let me tell you guys, it isn't that easy lining up guests. It isn't some super simple process. Either that or you guys get stuck listening to me for an hour straight, and we know you don't want that, right? I do have to say this, though. If it weren't for my producer, who's going to get his first mention here today, the great Karsten Hagen. First of all, how cool of a name is Karsten Hagen? It's just, Yeah. Exactly, exactly. If, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have any of the half of the great guests I've been able to talk to. This guy's a machine. Believe it or not, who would have thought this? Carson was an old nemesis of mine in the junior days when we were racing. We were roadies in the 80s and 90s in Northwest. He was from the West Side. And you hear a lot of guests. In fact, I think today's guest thinks I'm, I'm over near Seattle, but that's okay. I get A lot of people get Spokane and Seattle kind of they think we're all right next to each other, not understanding that I'm closer to Idaho than I am to um, Seattle. So do your judgment there. But Karsten, I was I was east side over here. Carson was west side. 
And boy, oh boy, you guys, we did battle week after week, year after year, epic fights. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I don't think I don't think it ever got negative. Carson's gonna have to tell me if we ever got negative. If I was ever an asshole to him on the bike, I might have. I, I'm not ruling myself out, but I don't recall it. Isn't that what it's always like? The asshole never remembers being an asshole. I do remember some great finishes though, and racing with Carson was a long time. And fast forward 30 years, you know, we all go about and live our lives and move on to things. Because of wonderful social media, Facebook, I'm clicking through, you know, people you may know. How many famous people do I might know? You know, what's the six degrees of separation? And there's Karsten's name on my recommended friends list. I click on it. Wait, you know. This is this was the test to know if I was the asshole at that time. You know, is, is he going to actually not respond to my friend request because something I said about his mother in a sprint finish or something like that? <laughs> he actually accepted it. He actually sends me a note, drops me a note saying how he listens to the show, and I'm going, oh, shit. Guy knows tons of big names in the cycling world. You know my Bend connection. That's that's Karsten down there. Works for Giant Bicycles. He says the interviews are show on the fun, and I should do more of them. Which I take as a, in other words, Pat, the shows you do by yourself where you're just talking for an hour straight are really fucking boring. But, um, yeah, and I should STFU, right? And he says he can get some names. And I'm like, oh, cool. Yeah, you know, man, awesome. Let's let's line up. Let's see what we can do. The first one was you know, the Ian Boswell interview that you probably recall a, f- a few months back. And so here we are. Occasionally, Carson drops me a note saying, hey, bye. I'm being a producer, and I got a name for you. What do you think? And then he puts me in touch with these people. It's been great. And so here we are. Carson pulled in today's guest, Gary Fisher, the creator. (laughs) So big thanks to Carson on this. Guy rocks. Not to mention his sense of humor. I also appreciate someone who doesn't take themselves too seriously, right? So the Gary Fisher interview was actually pretty good length. Guy can, guy can talk. He can tell some pretty cool stories. So my intro is going to be short today. Before I get to it, though, I got to thank some sponsors. If I, you haven't heard me mention Cool Water Bikes, welcome to the show. This is your first episode. Coolwaterbikes.org here in Spokane, Washington. Nowhere near Seattle, but a great shop with a great philosophy and a great service. Helping at-risk youth. Learn skills, get themselves straightened up and ready to rock. Check them out at coolwaterbikes.org. Donate some of your gear if you can. Shop there when you're in town. Go online, buy some cool stuff. Good people. Noah and coolwaterbikes.org. Also, big thanks to Man Can. Man Can, a brewery, craft brewery in your refrigerator. (sighs) Yep. Yep, 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 yep. If you've ever been to one of those places, get a growler fill, all those types of things, bring home the good beer. But it sucks because you open it up and you're like me. You live by your No, you don't live by yourself, but you're the only beer drinker in the house. And so I'll open it up and I'll drink a glass out of it. And oh my God, it's like you're in the pub. It just tastes so good. But you're in your house, so you don't have to deal with the assholes, especially the guy down at the end of the bar who thinks e-cigs should be legal to smoke anywhere he wants. And he's got a man bun and a beard and he's dressed like a lumberjack, but you know he's never touched a piece of wood in his entire life. Sorry, am I venting? But you get to drink beer in your house on my deck looking at my nice yard. Looks good, you guys. It does. It it was worth it. It was worth it. And I didn't even hurt my shoulder like I did that one time. But you pour that beer and you're thinking, oh, this is so good. And then you think you look over at the growl and you're going, oh shit. That's not gonna stay fresh. I can't drink sixty-four ounces in a sitting. Well, I might be able to, but I would probably hurt myself and be fatter. So you have to find a way to get creative with it. Well, man can did that for you guys. You can pressurize it with CO2. It'll keep the beer brewery fresh as long as you want it to. Delicious. Check them out at mancan.com. I think it's mancan.com. Go to the Pack Filler website and click on that link. Buy a couple man cans for yourself. Sit in your backyard and drink a beer. Yeah. 
thanks to those guys. Hey, you guys, also thanks. Uh, keep the uh, the rankings. Be sure and uh, subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes. And uh, you know, keep keep the keep the emails coming, even the even the mean ones. I can take it. I'm a big boy. Well, maybe not. Let's talk to Gary Fisher, shall we? All right, everybody, you've heard the legends, right? The Schwinn Excelsior, the clunkers, the creator himself, I guess we could call it, from a beginning that started on the road to an instrumental part in cycling history in the dirt. Today's guest is the guy I guess we can all blame from one of the bikes in our possession. Uh, please welcome to the show the great Gary Fisher. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. Thanks for that <laughs> intro. What? Yeah. what it, was, it was too much? Did I go a little too heavy on it? No, no, no. It's okay. I mean, you know, we come from the Hollywood background. So yeah. yeah, there you go. Nothing shocks us. <laughs> hey, you know, well, first off, I guess I should say, you know, let me apologize. You know, I talked to some cyclists and some people in the industry who, who, probably get tired of telling some of the same old stories again and I, i'm going to make a point not to <laughs> dwell on them too heavily but you know i'm sure there are a lot of people who would kill to know kind of the you know how this all came about but uh, uh there's a lot there's a lot of stories <laughs> oh my goodness gracious oh, and man. it took a long time you got to realize that too i mean it's like okay here we are and it's like you know 75 76 yeah. and like we're totally convinced you know this is going to be something. This thing's ridiculous. It was like, you know, like this drug you turn somebody onto and they go, wow, <laughs> this is so cool. And it would change their life and they get into it. Okay. I mean, I, the first year I built about 20 bikes for my friends, you know, clunkers. Yeah. Right? 70, you know, I, I made my own bike in like September of 74 and you know, perfected it over about a month's time. So it, it actually worked, you know, cause this, that was the other part is like, it had to hold up to like the dirt. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. They had really good brakes and everything that wouldn't like, you wouldn't have to mess with them every single day. You know, I mean, it was like, that was the philosophy that took about a month. And then for the next year, I made about 20 bikes, you know, for my roommate, Charlie Kelly, his yeah. friend, Fred Wolf, and then Fred Wolf started doing all these rides, and so people needed bikes. And the guy that really impressed me was this guy Bob Burroughs, just a fireman that was overweight, out of shape, down the street that wasn't a bike rider at all. And we got him a bike. He went. He said, "What are you guys doing?" You know, because we see him in the neighborhood all the time. And so yeah, he had to come out on a ride, and we he got a loaner, went on a ride, and that was it. You know, I mean, it yeah. totally changed his life. And I thought this makes total sense as, as far as like something that's going to spread because people would talk, you'd talk to people about riding a bicycle in the dirt in Mount Tam. Yeah. And half of them would say, that's, that sounds ridiculous. That's impossible. The other half would say, cool, I want to check it out, you know? And so that was sort of perfect. He had that sort of like adventure thing going on for it. And then at the same time, I mean, this was an incredibly practical bicycle. I was a bike mechanic. I was a bike racer. I raced, uh, I was Cat 1 at the time on the okay. road. And I'd been racing since I was 12 years old. So I'd been raced on the road, the track, you know, whatever there was. I rode my first cross race in 1964. Wow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that was, you know, a, a European thing and nobody in Northern California, not a single person had a, had a proper cross bike. It was just a bring anything and just ride the damn thing. Yeah. And they had a race like once a year. And it was a whole, you know, in the mid sixties, um, the whole road racing renaissance went on in California, Northern and Southern California. Before that, before 1964, they'd have a national championships, you know, and it'd be only the track. Yeah, and that'd been that way for a long time. And it was the guys on the East Coast and the Midwest that totally dominated that thing. And then, um, you know, California really started to come on in a road race thing, and they decided to have a road race at the Nationals in 1964 in L.A. And Michael Hiltner, better known <laughs> as Victor Vincenti of America, won that race, and he he had to beat uh, Tim Kelly at. Kelly at Northern California, which was a, you know, a road racer up here. Yeah. 
Anyway, I'm stretching off into like, man, it's like, I think about the years I've been riding a bike and all the crazy stuff that's gone on. Well, yeah, oh, I, I, no, I where mean. Where do you start? Where do you, where do you end? Well, you know? and what was this, what right. was this, you know, I'm, I'm looking up on you and I'm doing the research and, and what was this, um, <laughs> this hair violation of oh, some sort that, that was happened? a silly thing. I mean, come on, my hair was barely over my ears. God. And it was Walter Gimber, who was a, a great guy, a volunteer and his wife, his wife just passed away last month. Huh. Holy mackerel. But they used to be, he was like um, the district rep for NorCal, Nevada. And he just pulled me aside and said, hey, look, you got to cut your hair. You can't be looking like this, you know. <laughs> and I was like, forget it, you know. Like, And it, it, I'd met the week before uh, the Grateful Dead at a, <laughs> at a bike race. They did this bike race called the Tour del Mar. And it was them and the Quicksilver Messenger Service. Oh, my God. And uh, oh, I had an incredible time. You know, they, they played two nights in a row. Oh, God. And about 100 people showed up. Because <laughs> they weren't popular. You know, it's like yeah. the other day, this friend of mine who's a deadhead. I'm not really a deadhead to speak of. But he gets me a, a CD of, like, the record, recordings from that era and everything. Yeah. And I'm listening to this and going, like, Holy shit. It wasn't because they were any good. They were horrible. You know? <laughs> I just, must have liked these guys for another reason. They just kept jamming. It, they would keep the song going, so you well, just beat it, it in the air. No, no. It was more like it was a whole It was a whole scene, Yeah, you know? And it was all about, you know, consciousness expanding and about changing society. Because you got to, I mean, you know, come on. Wally Gimber. You know, yeah. he throws me out because my hair is just barely over my ears. Oh, my God. And, you know, it was those days in the mid-60s, you you marched around with long hair down to your shoulders as a guy, and you wouldn't be let into restaurants yeah. or stores, a lot of places. It was, uh, you know. <laughs> well, yeah. And, you, you know, know and, and, and if you were black, same deal, man. Oh, God. Well, and that's the uh, thing. You know, I know a lot of people go, Jesus, why didn't he just cut his hair? And I'm thinking, you got to understand the time period. You know, this was not just, uh, it was a statement and it was a way of life, I guess, you know. Well, not plus, to put, I, got, I got let in on a, on a really good time and a really incredible time. I mean, it's like Jack Leary was my best friend. We we're the exact same age. That's Timothy's son. I used to work oh, for God. the bear. And I worked for the Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead. I did light shows. Uh, you know, I decorated the Jefferson Airplane mansion. I was there at the Carousel Ballroom. I was a Carousellian. I mean, I remember one time I painted the naked lady uh, for Dr. John the Night, Night, Night Tripper when he played at the Carousel. I mean, shit, I met Johnny Cash. I met, you know, all of the managers, you know. the man Sam Cutler was manager of the Rolling Stones and Ron Rakow, oh. Grateful Dead. All this crazy stuff. It was intense. And you know, it was so incredible, you know. I mean, Janis Joplin played there one night at the carousel, and the tax squad was outside, all lined up. And the angels were there, our security. We used to oh, use yeah. the angels all the time. I mean, the hell's angels, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And people say, why the hell you want to use the hell's angels? Because you couldn't trust the regular security guys because there were drugs backstage. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> that's why we use the angels. And we use angels until Altamont, and Altamont, everything yeah. went haywire yeah. because people don't realize this. They used to have a really loose backstage list back in the day. This is December of 1969. And um, so all of a sudden, I mean, the Rolling Stones are playing, and all of a sudden, there are 500 beautiful women backstage. <laughs> the angels had blown it, you know, yeah. the guys at the door. And, you know, here's the <laughs> managers all like, Saying to Sonny Barger, you guys are out of control. So what's an angel do when they go out of control? <laughs> Kick the shit out of somebody. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Four people died that night. Yeah. Like the whole thing was over. Everybody left town. And I left town and started living with a band called New Riders of the Purple Sir or New Riders Purple of the Purple Sage. Yeah. We used to have the inside thing. We called Nude Riders of Purple Shirts on. <laughs> anyway, um, I lived with them. I'd take care of the house, get free rent, and I started riding my bike again. And I met Charlie Kelly because they said, hey, you got to meet this guy, Charlie. Charlie was a roadie for the Sons of Champlin. Oh, okay. Which incredible band and they had it they were incredible i mean you listen to them they're musicians musicians you know yeah. 
I mean, Bill Champlin went on and he got Grammys with Chicago and all this stuff. But I mean, this was the seminal band that they put together. And I'm telling you, they were hippies. <laughs> Holy mackerel. They put together this double album and it was incredible. And they go out to promote it. And about uh, halfway through the tour, they run out of weed. So they all came home. <laughs> <laughs> And that band was like that. They'd like get at the preferences of being a big hit and then they wouldn't make it, you know, it'd be funny. But uh, Charlie was solid and Charlie was my roommate and he was a bike racer, you know, bike rider. He had an orange Colnago and so did I. We both had orange Colnagos and, um, you know, I had picked up this, a dirt riding from my high school friends at Redwood High and they were like, you just bash around in parks or something, or what? Oh, man. We had the ultimate park called Mount Telmo Yeah, yeah Mount Tam. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you got to realize Mount Telmo Pius, early 60s to mid 60s, holy Toledo. People go out there and camp out all the time, oh. right? There were no chains on the gate. Yeah. So, like, you just drive your whatever out there and you go camp out and hang out. And it was a big honking party. And we had, you know, San Francisco right next door. I hate Ashbury was going off. All these stupid kids come and beg and stuff. And they made, you know, it was a, uh, literally a fire hazard after a while of like all the bullshit going on out there. So they put chains on the, all the gates. And so we were the kings. We had bikes. Yeah. And this was like, like um, my friends in high school turned me on to like balloon tire bikes. And, uh, you know, some guys in Velo Club, Tamil Pius, like, you know, Joe Breeze rode a ballooner and Otis Guy rode a ballooner. And there were a bunch of guys that rode ballooners. They were, those guys were from the Mill Valley side, and we were over in Fairfax. And the Fairfax scene was, you know, Fred Wolf and Charlie Kelly and oh, a bunch of people. And that's where the repack thing happened. Yeah. And it was like, Fred Wolf, man, that dude would put together all these rides all the time, which was really a good thing. And then I was providing bikes, and then Alan Bond started making bikes. And, um, you know, he was our roommate for a while. I just met him. On the street, I looked at his bike and holy shit, what a yeah. beautiful piece. Because he'd paint them and everything. They were really nice. Wow. And so I was trying to be a road racer. I was actually, you know, doing really well. And I was uh, finally, you know, going out to the Olympic Training Center in uh, Colorado Springs. Oh, yeah. And I was on the long team for the 80 Olympics. And then we decided we're not going to do that thing. Jimmy Carter, our president, said, we're not going to yeah, Moscow. Yeah. And I thought at the moment, wow, maybe it's time to start the bike company. Because <laughs> 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 I've been doing this for a while, and it was hot. I mean, it was just like totally screaming hot. And the circle back where I was going with this, I mean, come on. It was like seven years from the time we knew it was hot. Really? Right out of the gate. Bikes, until you could walk into a bike shop and walk out in the same day and actually have one. Yeah. You know? It was like that. I mean, you know, in the first five years, I think it, it, it grew like crazy. There might have been 500 people total in the world that did it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and well, that's how slow stuff takes. Stuff takes. You think it's really hot shit, but, well, come on. We're a bunch of like, you know, I worked as, in a bike shop. You know, I was a road racer. I worked at the liquor store. <laughs> I'd work at, no, and then I started working for Bicycling Magazine. Yeah. And that changed things. Because then I met everybody in the industry. And then Charlie and I went to uh, New York City to New York Bike Show to do a presentation uh, at the bequest of Bicycling Magazine. And this was all the bigwigs of the industry were there. And they all showed up at that presentation. And holy Toledo, man, we'd been practicing it. And it was um, Larry and Wendy Craig's photographs. Now, Larry Craig has always been the steel guitarist for Neil Young. Oh. And Larry Craig oh, is one of the original mountain bikers. And he and uh, Wendy were married, but they got a divorce, and she got the slides. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hey, stuff happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. well, anyway, um, they were both fabulous photographers. They go out there with their Nikon motor drives back in the day in the, oh. the mid-'70s. Oh, my God. We had, we had photographs of Repack. The Sierra Nevadas in California, out in Colorado, Crested Butte, and get this, the, this is crazy. Howie Hammerman was Charlie's partner in crime as a roadie for the Sons of Champlin. Howie turned out to be George Lucas's third employee. 
So Howie had the run of George's <laughs> house, and like we used to about once a month, we put on a slideshow in George Lucas's screening room, you know. And the the thing about this whole thing is Charlie and I got it wired. We had these incredible shots, and we knew all these stories, and man, we blew their minds, right? And that was part of the thing is I wanted to get a supply chain going because it was like all these parts of the early day bikes where, you know, TA Cyclotourist yeah. crank set, Mayfec uh, cantilever brakes, yeah. you know, Suntour derailers sun, or Shimano derailers, Suntour shifters, yeah. you know, on and on and on and on. It was like a, just this potpourri of crap you had to buy all from all these individual things. And I developed all these relationships. I mean, Magura. You know, man, those guys said, they dropped everything, said, we'll do anything. We'll make this work. Really? I mean, they loaned us money. They did all this stuff, and it was crazy. A couple of hippies out started this company called Mountain Bikes in, like, 79. Yeah. And we did this um, presentation in 81, and then immediately afterwards, I started going to Japan. And um, lo and behold, I mean, as it turned out, the people that gave me my next big loan were the Japanese government. <laughs> Because I was working with Shimano, yeah. Suntour, Sugino. I did uh, tube sets with Tange, Ishiwata. Yeah. The, the Unicron Fork with Tange, Ishiwata. Did uh, worked with Nito Handlebar, you know, uh, Mrs. Yoshikura. <laughs> worked with, um, you know, all these companies. It was really crazy. I mean, and the, uh, and what I'd, I'd say is, like, what I want is first delivery, best prices, and terms. And they gave it to me. Oh. And it's like, I go down to Chinatown here in San Francisco, buy a round trip ticket for $400, and it'd be good <laughs> than, you know, in two days. You buy a ticket two days before, a day before, and you just show up over there and say, hey, I'm here, let's go to the factories. And I go, cool, let's go do it, man. Oh, and it was like, it was a really uh, great collaboration because it, it made it so we can make a lot of bikes yeah. because that was the thing. It's like, man, this whole thing wasn't going anywhere with making 10 bikes a year, you know, or 20 bikes a year or whatever. Yeah. It just, you need, we needed to turn on the faucet. And we had a great frame builder, Mr. Tom Ritchie. Holy mackerel. Oh, that yeah. guy was so skilled and could turn out. I mean, he, Dave and Devin worked for him. And Dave and Devin would do setups, you know, that is that, uh, I deliver the tubing, Dave yeah. and Devin would do the setups. That is they'd cut the tubing and tack up the frames and Tom would do one thing. Tom would fillet brace Jesus. and he was incredible. They were you all know? fillet braced. Well, yeah. The ones we did wow. an a frame yeah. and it was, that was fillet braced. And then we go back and clean it up and everything and make it perfect. And those were ridiculously perfect. And then was the B frame and the B frame was the big quantities and Tom could do like, 50 frames in one week, um, one oh size. Right? And we made the first year 160 bikes, the second year 1,000 bikes. Because we, you know, I had like seven different uh, wheel builders. I had three different painters, you know, getting parts in from all kinds of people. Cause Did Tom man, ever come out of the shop? I mean, doing 50 bikes oh, yeah. a week is no, insane. No, no, no. no. He ride his shit. bike every day. Oh, my God. Little good shape, you yeah. know. It's it called balances. Like he, <laughs> he was able. No, the thing with Philip Brazing is like, we used to say it's the easiest way to ruin a perfectly good set of tubing. Yeah, I've ever seen, because if you've got to lay down the brass quickly, you can't sit there and let the tubing cook. Now this is old school tubing. New school oh, yeah. tubing, you get this air hardened tubing that like, man, you can cook it forever and it still works. Yeah, but um, the old stuff you couldn't cook the tubing, and then the second thing. That would happen was that the the brass uh, after it cooled down was harder to take away than the steel. Oh yeah, you, you end know, up filing so, away the steel. Yeah, so you cut into the steel with whatever tools you're using. Yeah. That'd be you know like what you do is like the classic way is you start with a, a hot filing. That's when the the lug you know was still super hot and everything. Wow. And you go after with a big ass rat tail file, <laughs> and the other way. Um, was use uh, that after that you come and uh, clean it up with uh, die, a die grinder and these cones, you know, abrasive cones and things, and uh, just the abrasive cone. And Tom could make the B frame where like he didn't do anything. Yeah, like he bead blast the thing, and then we paste. Uh, then we paint it with uh, 
uh, a really th- big metallic, you know, that is pretty big flakes. Yeah. So and you just fill see, it in. You can't see any of the imperfections. <laughs> and that was a, you know, and it, that was a really beautiful, you know, little bike that like it wouldn't break, you yeah. know, it was really good, you know, and that, that was, a, it was always a concern back then because we had, we had to figure out, you know, how strong a mountain bike frame had to be because a traditional old road, you know, road bikes at just the frontal impact, they were like yeah. 650 pounds or so right at the, at the dropout, you could put pressure on it before the thing would collapse. And we finally figured out you needed to be at least around 850 pounds because then what would happen is you'd, Nobody could hang on. It shucks the rider off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so anyway, yeah. You- no, Tom. Tom cranked, and so like he would. He'd build a frame. He'd build frames, and um, then I uh, had forks made, and then I'd pick up the frames and take them to painters, and then uh, we actually even had the decals made. We had we imported all the parts. Uh, the, two separate operations. Tom had his operation called Richie Custom Cycles done in. Uh, uh, Woodside up on the hill, Skyline yeah. Boulevard, and then we had you know mountain bikes, and it was yeah. Charlie and I, and we you know we did all the painting, we did all the decals, we did all the assembly, we imported all the parts, we did all the marketing, we did all the sales, Jesus. we did all the collections. Tom <laughs> did one thing: he built frames, cranked them out, cranked them out, and that was the the whole theory is like, man, he got good because he did nothing but that one thing. Yeah. He now, got really good. Did you guys find because you know I I grew up my my cycling started in the in the eighties and you know I remember when it all started to kind of come about, especially right. mountain biking. And uh, did you guys ever get any pushback in terms of I you know it's just a fad, it's not going to last very long or anything? Yeah, a that little kinda? bit, not a lot. Really, everybody just the, the thing some you take a, a guy like that on a ride, they'd say this is really hard on prejudices, <laughs> you know. They'd go out there and just see all the potential and what fun it was. And then I worked really hard on uh, legitimizing it. And that was that the dimensions that I chose were all for high-quality parts. That is, you know, yeah. it was all Campagnolo English thread, okay? Oh, yeah. And that was like their dimensions, you know, were what all the good headsets came in. With all the good seat posts, the, the dimension used to be 26.8 that you wanted to have for that. And the only thing that was really oddball was... Uh, we used our own bottom bracket, which was just a, a real simple setup, you know, a, a, se- a 35 by 17 by 10 bearing, you know, a sealed bearing. That yeah. actually was an uh, English company called Viscount that was using in the early 70s. Jeez. And, it was, and Richie picked it up and Klein picked it up. And it was a good, a good design. It was robust. And uh, it was not that hard to do, you know. And, and especially when you had to have an oddball chain line and everything, which we'd established for mountain bikes and everything. But, um, man, it was intense. You know, <laughs> we just had a line out the door all the time. Really? You know, oh, we started selling in every state in the union, and we were selling in England, we were selling in Europe. And then we had teams, you know, we had like a team. The first Norba National Championships, we had a real mountain bike team. That is, we made frames that were all, I mean, bikes were all identical for the team. And we had, you know, skin suits, man, you know, <laughs> and they, we had, you know, Eric Hyden was on the team. I mean, you know, five-time Olympic gold medalist, uh, Dale Stetna, who was, you know, yeah, he was like a, you know, uh, incredible the, road the racer. The Stetna brothers, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, Joe Murray, you know, and Joe Murray, well, his year was the next year. And Joe Murray, oh, man. Joe won everything for a while there. Well, okay. And then we had this exposure and this was with uh, a magazine called on your own and on your own i don't know that it, one it, okay <laughs> but it has 11.2 million Jesus. circulation oh in the my. united states and this is uh, this goes out it's a very targeted audience it goes out to every high school senior in the united states <laughs> this this magazine has one advertiser the u.s army so we get oh. this Joe Murray story as a cover story. And a Joe Murray story, I mean, oh, my God, he comes to work for the company as a mechanic, and he's sweeping the floor and doing all the grunt work. And then he becomes the incredible mechanic, and, man, he sets the record for putting bikes together one day and everything. And then he starts, says, I want to race, you know, and he starts training, and then he goes to his first race, 
and he wins it. <laughs> and everybody at the race says, well, so-and-so and so-and-so aren't here. I mean, yeah. this kid's good, but he's going to get beat. And Joe wins the second race. <laughs> and a third. The fourth. Joe wins seven races in a row. And it's a big deal because in those days, you know, it was like uh, – 84, I mean, there are only so many races on the calendar. So every worthwhile, just about every worthwhile uh, mountain biker would show up to the events. So he went seven in a row, and they're all the big events, you know. Or And then the national championships are going to take place in Colorado, um, out in Breckenridge. And I knew he had to acclimatize, so I sent him out a month in advance. And he loses the first race. He loses the second race. He takes a week off. He does the national championships. You know who's there? Andy Hampston. Oh, shit. He beat Andy Hampston. <laughs> Joe Murray beat Andy Hampston. So it's like this incredible, you know, and Andy had, had won the Giro and everything. Yeah, Andy was flying before. then. Yeah, and it was like, you know, this was the, the cover story in this magazine. It so put us on the map. You know, that, and we were doing that whole thing. I mean, that's the Hollywood part is my, my grandfather worked for Warner Brothers and Hal B. Wallace and down in Hollywood, and he taught me about marketing really early on, and my mother, too. And I got my first experience with it of marketing our bike race team, you know, Vela Club Tamalpais. Yeah. And I'd go out and, you know, work with the local periodicals. I mean, all the, the newspapers and magazines and stuff. We got a lot of press. And it's really easy to get sponsors when you get a lot of press. So we worked it. You know, I learned how to work it really hard. And we did that really, really well. And um, so it was, you know, the things that you got to have a really great product. You yeah. got to hype the living crap out of it. And then you got to provide it. You got to take care of people, you know. And now, now I work for Trek. And this has been yeah. like, it's coming up on 24 years right now. And uh, in fact, it was 24 years, April 3rd. And these guys, so we sell bikes in 100 countries now. And we Jesus. just, you know, and the basic goodness of Trek is like they just take care of people, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. You need a bike, okay, we can get you a bike. The bike works. It's what you expect. If it's not what you expect, hey, we'll, t hey, we'll fix you up, man. And if something breaks or something goes wrong or you're in a crisis, we tend to take care of people. Yeah. And we got a reputation for it, and that really works. And in my book, you know, I mean, all that stuff is really important to making the bike go fast down the road. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know? Well, I do have a question about that whole Trek deal, but I got to find out from you in terms of this. I mean, you've come up with a ton of uh, stuff. You were, you guys always seem to be, you know, bringing new things to it, even from, you know, standover height and top two length to all this kind of stuff. And even the 29er, I got to know about, I got to ask about you. Where did this come from where did you know not only this did you have a marketing background did, where did these ideas oh, come to you is it just I, like I, shit I, up I, in the I, middle of the night oh my god <laughs> no I, well when i was a kid at school i mean i wouldn't pay attention to the teacher and just sit there and draw things all the time <laughs> i got in trouble for that all the time and then you know doing a thing with um, all the bands and all that stuff yeah. i mean the light show stuff the light show stuff was incredible we had 10 people on our show and we built all of our own projectors, and my main partner was Alan Cooper, and he's got Cooper.com now. He he is the father of Visual Basic, and he's been very successful, and Jeez. he deals with like IBM and Sony and all these big old companies, and it's really hilarious. I mean, we're a couple of like long-haired punk kids in high school. Yeah. Then we wind up being you know really establishment, <laughs> you know, but uh, with our own principles in mind, because you gotta you gotta realize that. I mean, that whole hate Ashbury thing. It was like. It was a cool scene for about six months. Yeah. And it was about the right things. And then came the media said, it's all about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And did we, and did we mention it's all for free? And so all these, uh, yeah. a lot of dumb kids came out, put their hands out, and were panhandling and begging and winding up in the gutter. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and yeah. They're still there. That's what's hilarious. <laughs> and that wasn't the idea. It, it, it quickly got out of hand. As you can imagine, why? Yeah, yeah. but so, <laughs> but you just—I mean, you just kind of these I'm, things. I'm just so thankful I got back into bikes. Yeah, believe me, because well, it was like, but where I—I've I, always had a, a streak of like, okay, let's try this, let's try that, and it gets you in trouble a lot of the time because what you find out is like people are really secure. It, it's like they've done a uh, some research uh, in the last ten years about. Uh, early adopters versus people who would hang on to anything. And 11% yeah. of the population would buy 
a rotary phone if they still offered it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then there's like, I'm on the opposite end of like, I'm just trying out crazy stuff and doing things all the time. And like you were saying to me, oh, I like having a person to have Skype. It's like, dude, I got like, there's things hardwired in. I got yeah. a super fast connection. You know, I got Skype and I got a really nice Plantronics uh, headset that's super convenient and stuff. And like, I love this stuff. Yeah. I still do. You know, and it's like with bikes, it's like my friends, my old friends, my old road racer friends are saying, oh, come on, man. You got to come and get a steel frame and go ride some of these events and things yeah. like that. And I'm going like, no, <laughs> I like my modern stuff, you know, and it really works well. At, at the same time, it's like one of my favorite bikes is my, um, my old Dutch bike, which is a about 15 years ago and it was made in a factory that's been making the same damn bike since the twenties, yeah. you know, and everything's made in the old way and they use seamed tubing, oh, but high quality, you know, stamped ends. They'd say, well, you know, if a stamped end, there's no dropout to drop out. Yeah. And, and it's this beautiful <laughs> piece, you know, the, the stampings and everything and enclosed chain cases and why they're so wise, you know, and how they work really well. And, the shapes of a rolled steel rim are such oh, that the edges are round, literally. And when you get to low pressure, which people do all the time, especially in Europe and stuff, they ride around and the, the, the rim is going thuck, thuck, thuck as you're like, your tires, <laughs> at, your tires at 15 pounds and you're bottoming <laughs> out and a thing doesn't puncture. You know, and it's, it's, these, these bikes are the ones made to just roll and roll and roll and roll and last and not necessarily go fast at all. And we, as an industry in the United States and Trek and, oh man, so many of us, we gotten so into bikes that go fast and I love yeah. it, you know, but yeah. I want to balance all the time with like, let's make stuff that like, Hey, this is going to be reliable and really last. And that's, you know, I mean, Keith Bontrager, he's always been that cynic about stuff and I love it, you know, of like, uh, of, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> there's no free lunches, you know? Yeah. And I grew up with, um, oh, you know, back in the day, Yopes brand. Oh my God. You know, here's that Hewlett Packard energy engineer. And he knew exactly how all bike parts were actually made oh, and why they get made in this way and why they get the shapes and things and how they interact with each other and why, a bicycle is made and, and, and the classic, those old steel bikes, man. I mean, it's like made in the, you know, sixties and seventies. They're really meant to last about 20 years, Yeah, <laughs> you know, and the Campagnolo group wouldn't oh, yeah. change from year to year. Oh my God. And you just look at the back of the rear derailleur, see the number stamped in it. You knew what year it was. That's yeah. how you had to tell. Yeah. And they would, you know, and you could buy all the little itty bitty teensy weensy parts, anything you wanted just to, <laughs> refurbish it and everything oh man yeah that until the delta break <laughs> until the delta break came out and then that just oh, yeah just put an anchor on the front and back of your bike but well yeah they i don't they know were cool i loved them. i thought they were cool i thought they were gorgeous man i got they show. are gorgeous i mean <laughs> shimano all the time talks about how they aspire to make as beautiful equipment they still talk about it really and they talk yeah and if, the one thing they couldn't match i mean shimano uh, one third of their company is robotics, you know? Yeah. It always has been. I mean, I mean, 30 years ago, walk into the Shimano factory in Sakai City and they take you into this uh, room that's totally dark, totally noisy. They switch <laughs> on the lights and it's like they're all this machinery making derailleurs, you know? <laughs> and doing it without any assistance, no oversight at all. It just goes, you know? And it's, uh, they would say about, um, Campagnolo, they envy Campagnolo's hand yeah. polishing because it was all hand polished. They get a guy out there with a big old buffing machine, and he's been doing this for years, and he polishes those parts up so that they're so beautiful and everything before they anodize it and everything. It's all really, oh Jesus, you know, so, a lot of hand stuff. But they they stuck. Campagnolo's done the right thing. They just sort of stuck. They got out of the mountain bike stuff, and they just stuck to yeah. like what really does it for them. Yeah. So hopefully they'll survive. <laughs> God, yeah. Well, so where's all this going? Where do you think? I mean, you've been with the sport since its inception, and right. there's a lot of things that's been traveling. The pendulum slides one way and come back to the other way. The population of the sport grows and declines. Um, yeah. Where do you think we're headed? 
Well, there's a lot of, um, the bike is a real tool, you know, it's yeah. finally, that's coming around in a lot of countries like crazy. And that's, uh, they finally figured out it's much easier to change the environment than to change uh, people's behavior. And if they make cities that are something that has nature in it and you want to be outside and you want to go exercise and you, or you want to get around on a bike, it's a worldwide movement right now. You know yeah. what I mean? That, the bike thing is being supported by a lot of politicians in a, in a lot of countries. The U.S., not as much, although there are some notable cities that have gone a long ways to getting people uh, out of their cars and onto their bikes. And these bikes right now, oh, man, they're not that expensive. And uh, the used bike has been the champion. I mean, God, we've recycled through so many used bikes. It's crazy. You know, in the last 15 years, I mean, there used to be five shops in San Francisco that sell nothing but used bikes, and today there's zero because they're sort of hard to come by now. You wow. know, they're, and people love them and everything. Wow. So, I mean, that doesn't do much for the um, industry. You know, the industry is, in, I mean, we, we sell Electra at, at track, and we sell, you know, the FX bike, which is basically a bike for people that want to exercise more. It's not really a pure commuter bike, and a pure commuter bikes are something that's, just starting to take traction and then there's the electric bike thing oh well, man that was what I, something i was going to ask you about especially in terms of i'm seeing there they were racing them at sea otter well that's the mountain bike side and yeah. the mountain bike side in the united states is really controversial at this moment yeah and we are i know you know like specialized is selling theirs i know we're going to sell one we've been selling one in europe for some years and that's gotten really popular there but i think both you know a lot of the companies are like, well, we had a, because I mean that you can't, they're here already. Yeah. And there's no stopping them. Okay. <sighs> but all right. But there's like, I, I don't know what's going to happen, you know, because there's definitely, there are places where maybe these things shouldn't be. Yeah. There's definitely people see, you know, gosh, you know, a lot of like old people and things, they wouldn't be riding at all. Yeah. Yeah. Unless it were that. So there's a good things that, but I'll tell you, I mean, right now, I mean, I'm busy with, um, okay, Trek Bicycle. We've made, you know, John Burke, he's a president, yeah. and he says, I want this, and he wants it really bad. What he wants is he wants to have mountain bike racing in every high school in the United States. Oh. There's 179,000 high schools in the United States, and we're going to do this, and we're like, a, we're like, Looking at you know the uh, the barriers to entry to all these schools, I yeah. mean, a number of things that problems that are real problems that need to get solved, and they will be solved. Damn it, well, I'm totally into this because this is going to be more bike riders coming into the whole system yeah. than we've ever had. You just I mean, hit the electric a, bike thing is really cool, yeah. but man, there's a bunch of old guys like me. You well, just hit a have. soft spot with me, man. I first yeah. of all, when I'm not doing this, I <laughs> when I'm not doing this, I teach high school, yeah. and um, I've been talking on this show for years about the fact that yeah. the sport is consisting of middle-aged to old white guys, and we need yeah. to get a junior yeah. emphasis going. Because the middle-aged to old white guys, I mean, you go in front of the city councils and all those people, and they go, yeah. they go pay for it yourself, white guy, <laughs> you know? I like that, you know? And, and when you bring in your kids and you say, man, my kid was in trouble. Yeah. He was hanging on the street corners. I got him in this program. He's doing great. You can't tell me we can't have some single track, you know? Yeah. And it's like, it's screen-free time, you know, these kids get to have. God, imagine that. And it's something you can do with your teenager as a parent. There are not many sports you can, you know. And it's actually, um, you know, mountain biking, cross-country mountain biking. I was on the Norva Board of Trustees for a long time. Yeah. And we, you know, sponsored a lot of races. We bought a lot of insurance. We'd, you know, we'd sell insurance all the time. We were a big broker of insurance. So the actuaries would tell us that cross-country mountain biking is actually safer than any field sport for a kid. Really? Well, think about it. The field sports, you got somebody running after you yeah. trying to take you down all the time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Unexpected whap, you know? Yeah. <laughs> You know, that, and concussion is a huge exactly. issue. I was just about to say, my kid's been playing soccer for 10 years. He's had more concussions than I have in 30 years of cycling. That's a mess. Yeah. Concussions are a mess. The three things I've been identifying more and more, concussion is a problem with schools. They don't want any more sports that have concussion, and we got to mitigate this and work on this. Secondly it, it is um, the... Um, 
there aren't enough mountain bike tracks that are close to every school. Yeah. We got to build more. You know, these kids can't be expected to be, you know, shuttled around, you know, overnighters yeah. and stuff. That's crazy. And the third one is like the cost of bikes. You know, I mean, yeah. should there be, you know, leagues that like prohibit really expensive bikes? Should there be, there should definitely be subsidies yeah. from the government because our kids are going south, you know? 30% of our kids are, are like um, massively overweight when they're, they're pre-diabetic when they're 10 years old. We got real, yeah. you know, expensive problems coming up if we don't do something. I mean, you know, a lot of what I sell it on now is like, come on, man. It's like healthcare in the United States is 17. That's 1-7% of gross domestic product. All these other countries, all our other advanced countries are running healthcare at between 9 and 12%. We're crazy. You think that spread between you know, 12 and 17% of U.S. Uh, domestic product. I mean, yeah. that's going to be bigger than the, um, you know, the Chinese debt and the federal <laughs> debts combined, both those servicings combined. You know, it's crazy. And then, like, the medical world is starting to tell us, guess what? Lifespan in the U.S. is starting to go south. So it's like I'm raising a red flag yeah. to these guys and saying my all my – my friends out there at the city councils, my Republican friends as well as my Democratic friends, saying this makes fi no financial sense that you guys don't. Uh, and there's the emotional one of like, our kids are leading us down the path of like a lower lifespan. This is un-American, you know. And yeah. we got a plan. Do you have a plan? We got a plan. We're gonna get more people to ride bikes because we're gonna give them safe places to ride, and we're gonna you know spur on the construction industry. Those guys are my friends too. You know, we need to build new things. And I'll tell you, on the West Coast, we're all waiting for the big one because then we get to rebuild everything. <laughs> <laughs> is Come it on, you guys, you guys are sitting right on top of yeah. it. Is, yeah. it, is it working? <laughs> are, they, are, are, they, are you getting, are they listening? You know where I, okay, you know where I get a lot of traction? Overseas. Shit, South no. America. See, oh, man. that doesn't do us any good, though. I mean, you know, I'm just uh, thinking no, selfishly. No, no, it will because they'll build it there. It works. And you can use that as more example. Yeah. And that's happening. I mean, look at London. Look at it, what's happened there, and what they're very happy with it. A lot. It's like uh, uh, there's only two cars to every bike in the congestion zone now. You know, so it's the ratio is. It used to be twenty cars. Like f seven years ago, it's twenty cars to every bike, and now it's only two cars to every bike. That's how many bikes have increased. And you know, Paris has got a plan to take the car, be car free. Madrid's got a plan to be car free. Um, Hamburg, uh, you know, has a plan to be cars as we know them free. Ten cities in um, Germany are going for zero emission centers. So that's going to be electric vehicles only and bikes and walking. And there are more and more um, areas that they figured out retail is enhanced when you <laughs> take the yeah. cars out of there. <laughs> you know, so there's a lot more proof of a concept that's going on where it's, uh, in the United States, there's a lot of people with their heads in the sand still. You know, they still don't see it. Yeah. I was just down in Santiago, Chile. Chile, 84% of uh, people in Chile own a bicycle. And only about 40% in the United States. And those guys, I mean, Santiago, 8 yeah. million people. And there was it was a World Bike Forum. I was a speaker, and uh, I met all the mayors. There are five mayors, okay, five different mayors in the different areas. And they're all behind it, man. And I've been making some really good friends. And we do B-cycle down there, you know. So we we're it's really successful. And, you know, I was on their radio, their television, a lot of their newspapers, and just telling them, you know, don't screw it up like we have in the States. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and there's a way to come around and make a vibrant city. I mean, come on. 100 years ago, cities were places where people would raise their children. Yeah. This is where all intellect was. And we're going to bring that back. And that's what, you know, that's make it a safe place for your kids, a place where you want your kids to be. And right now, I mean, it's, it's flat out poisonous and it's like yeah. you, it, you're at hazard of a massive crushing death. Come on, American cities are a disaster at the moment. And people are starting to wake up. I mean, London is going through a big campaign about their air quality, and oh, man, it's tied into the good old diesel engine, which was oh yeah, a hoax. Yeah, it's been a hoax. The whole industry. I mean, and Elon Musk, holy mackerel, man, what a guy! I can't believe it. You know, and as now uh, a few days ago, he's uh, 
wants to change things with the driverless bus. And then driverless cars are coming, whether you like it or not. And this is part of the thing is the pushback. They don't do a lot for our health. And the bike, you know, that's a huge part of this is that, you know, the human being has this motor. And the motor <laughs> needs to be run just about every day. And there's more and more medical evidence that, like, you'll be brighter, you'll be sharper, and you'll be much less of a burden on our healthcare system. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just keep coming back to that because, you know, it's like the healthcare field is sort of flipped out. I mean, they're looking at, like, the, the numbers coming up at such a ferocious uh, rate yeah. of people needing healthcare. And they look at the number of hospitals being built, the numbers of doctors coming in the system. And it's like, I'll tell you a little story. I got a friend over in Maui, you know, a track dealer, hardcore road rider. I love riding with this guy. And um, we're going over to Maui, my wife and I, and the kid, and call him up, man, let's ride. He says, can't, broke my hip. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, man. I get my operation next month. Next month? Oh. You're kidding. He said, yeah. They looked at me and said, you're healthy. Lie on the couch. Hospitals overbooked, not enough doctors. So you thinking you're thinking, oh, I'm healthy, this isn't gonna affect me. Huh. This is a problem. I tell you. I mean, all those guys got out there sucking up the healthcare system and everything. And a lot of it's, you know, I mean, sitting in a box every day and staring into a computer for too long is killing us, man. And and, we know it. and starting earlier too, you know, and yeah. that's where it comes oh, back to the kids. Here. Oh yeah. It's it's good and crazy. So Anyway, you know, um, I'm work, we're working on that project like crazy. The kids, uh, electric mountain bikes are going to come whether you like it or not. We got to deal with it. And um, electric bikes in general are going to be a big uh, revenue stream for, uh, for bike dealers, you know. And oh. bike dealers are going through big changes right now. You know, it's like um, uh, a lot of them are going away, so to speak, yeah. you know, because it's uh, – it's like the modern bike shop is, uh, it's a community place. I mean, it's community, you know, people like to hang out there. It's a place. It's education because man, our sport is complex. And yeah. that is, you know, I mean, people showing up and speaking and doing things and, you know, different nights for different things. And then the third one is like service, good service. Yeah. And it's that thing. I mean, I started working in a bike shop when I was 14 and it was this wind shop and one of the things we'd say, and man, this is like for a long time, I remember saying this, uh, and a lot of shops still say it. It's like, okay, you, you sell somebody a bike and you say, okay, you get a free 30-day check because after all, a cable stretch yeah. and everything works into each other and everything. Well, hey, you know what? I think that's a cover for just lousy mechanics. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I imagine I got a guy who's just, you know, got the yellow jersey in the Tour de France and I got a yellow frame for him. We're going to build it up. Am I going to tell him that the next day? No way. <laughs> it's like there's this thing called a race mechanic. I can throw, I mean, I know these guys and not, a, not many of them, but I know a handful of these guys that I can throw a bike at and a bunch of parts and it's like the next morning, this is a solid machine. Yeah. And there's no way you can tell a parts installer from a pro mechanic right now, or, you know, a race mechanic. And that's where the whole thing has to go. It's like certification, you know, all the, a lot of the other countries, you got certifications, you know, like the, I know Germany, you got to be a bike mechanic for two years apprentice before you can call yourself a bike mechanic. Uh, wow. Switzerland, there's a big test and you know, they teach it at the universities and everything. And you have to be, you know, you got to be something, you know, you got to, you have to earn your stripes and everything. Yeah. Well, I and know that's, that's where we got to go on this thing. It's like, you're <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I saw that track the other day, I'm looking for a new bike for my kid and I saw that it's now you can order through the website online. It goes to your local bike shop and then everything gets taken over there. Yep. And yeah. That, well, we're not, I mean, you know, come on. I've yet to see the hand with the wrench come through the screen and yeah. say, I'll fix that for you. So it's like these guys, you know, that undervalue their skills. I mean, because that's the thing is like 60% of human beings got no business holding a wrench. 
<laughs> let alone using it on a high-performance bike. I mean, yeah. I swear to God, you know, it's like, and they're great people. They do other things wonderfully, you know, but they just don't, they don't, they don't have a knack or they don't want to. Yeah. And it's the majority of those, that 60%, it's like, no, man, I got better things to do. I don't want to get my hands greasy. I cut, I mean, every time I do it, I cut my, my fingers and you know what? Yeah. I morph the bolts, I make it look ugly and it's not right. So why bother? And they want somebody to do it. And those mechanics that get beat up by somebody that said, oh, I can do that. That's too easy. And it's like, no, you know, well, maybe they can. They watch enough YouTubes, they can do it right. But most people, the majority of humans, they can watch all the YouTubes that you ever want and they're never going to get, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. good old classic quick release on right. <laughs> Seriously. You're so it's, it's one of these things you don't, it, like you fail when you try to teach the behavior that is, you know, modify the behavior. Yeah. And you, you succeed when you change the environment and changing the environment here is like, and we see it right now. It's in process right now. It's the, ever since the UCI said, okay, the teams can't file off the tabs anymore. Yeah. yeah. And you got to use the stock setup. Well, now it's, you know, the front wheel is sort of ridiculous. You see the guy screwing it on and off and oh, everything. Oh God. Yeah. And there's a bunch of companies right now working on the next generation of, you know, of a, of a QR, you know, it's probably yeah. be a through axle, you know, and there's a number of different through axles that are working that way. And they'll make a nice little click, a point, something you can feel, something you can hear. Yeah. So, you know, and it's like, can you imagine you get into my brand new car? It is a race car, man. <laughs> okay. It doesn't have any clicks on the door. <laughs> okay. Close the door. Oh, that That's not hard enough. Oh, that's too hard. That's yeah. too hard. Could you imagine a car like that? No. <laughs> no. You know, and that's what we got with a bike. You know, yeah. it's like, it's crazy. You know, we tell people like, oh yeah, tighten the quick release until it indents the dropout. Yeah. And then it's like, that makes sense to me. I can yeah. do it. You know, I can, I mean, I got an engineering head, you know, I've been a mechanic all my life and I like it, you know, yeah. I still like it. But for 60% of people, it's like, man, you're talking mumbo jumble. Yeah. I understand you. And they're the ones who lift their bars going over a set of train tracks <laughs> and their front wheel goes flying off and then they're, they're suing the company. Yeah. They're the ones that they... They drive down their steep hill that they live on and they pull their, you know, or they take their bike, they take their bike in their car and they drive close to work and then the traffic or, or you know, the parking there is ridiculous. So they park somewhere out of outside and they ride in every day and ride out. Those are the guys we're getting sued by more than yeah. anybody, you know, because they put in the front wheel in and out, in and out all the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's like, this is, there's a whole movement, you know, we're going to. And that took since the early 70s. Yeah. And we never fixed it, you know? I mean, never really, truly, we are now, you know, finally. And we suffered from it. You know, we suffered lawsuits. We still do, you know? It's crazy. So I, I really shouldn't even no. admit to the fact that we ever, you know, we always wanted the best. Come on, I can't imagine a, a bike rider that tried to, or even a bike company. You know, some bike yeah. riders think that bike companies like are like just, in it for the money wrong business yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know it's, i can't even the most heartless bike company you know that some people think are heartless they're bike people man yeah. come on i swear you know i i'd never I'd, n I'd met a ton of people in the bike industry and it's a good industry it's good people oh man well Shit. <laughs> I don't know where to Let's go from there. Cry. That's a great. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Dude, do you yeah. ever have to pay for a beer anywhere you go anymore? It's very dangerous. <laughs> and I don't. Uh, you know, it's like it's too much. I, I just, I, God, I'd, I'd hunt you down and say, come on, sit here. No, yeah. tell me some more. <laughs> oh, we had, uh, okay, we had this. Um, Oh, we had this big trek thing at Meyerhof in Austria. We invite all these journalists from all over Europe and everything. And this place is a party town. Oh, like you can't believe. And we give them, we give each journalist 60 euros worth of drink tickets. And these guys, I can't <laughs> believe it. And, and when the English come in, I mean, they go really crazy. And They've got these uh, these bars they call sticky floor bars. They're carpeted, but there's been so much oh, beer poured God. on. 
that that they're sticky now, you know. <laughs> and uh, the classic thing, I remember this one journalist, he like gets dropped off by this taxi right in the middle of town, you know, at like eight o'clock in the morning the next day. And he goes, where am I? What happened to me? Where's all my money? And they, you know, they went to some strip club or something like that, you know, and he lost everything in an entire day. You know, it was like, <laughs> oh man, that was an official event. That's how we get, that's how we bribe these uh, journalists. So they write really nice things about us, you know, <laughs> We make them really, really drunk. Really, really easy oh, to do. Goodness. Well, anyway, that was like it. It got that was out of hand, and that was about oh six, seven years ago. And like we 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 cut back a little bit. Trek is a hospitality company, specializes a company where they're a little bit um, dry, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. You know, when you talk to all the journalists, they talk about that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, man, first of all, I'm so glad I got the chance to talk to you, man. This has been great. And uh, and second of all, you know, I, I said at the outlet that I want to blame you for most of the bikes in my possession. I got I got 17 bikes in this house. Now, there are oh, three man. people here. There are three people here, but that's, you know. And and several of them are because of, of you and your friends going out and banging around Mount Tam. And so uh, yeah. Yeah. thanks for what you did. <laughs> well, we're not done, you know. That's the thing. Yeah. Is we now we got to make uh, we got to spread the beauty, you know, spread the goodness, spread the fun. We have a highly addictive sport, and for all the right reasons. And that's like uh, the next step, you know. Professionalize the industry, and uh, you know, make an impact on the world, a better one. And especially, you know, infrastructure and the cities. The cities are changing like crazy. So it's a really exciting time. For me, I mean, and um, I'm not giving up. I'm going out and traveling, and, and I've been riding my bike a lot. We got, you know, the, uh, oh, we do the National Bike Challenge at uh, the company, and like 1,800 riders, you know, oh, they're man. out there riding like like a lot, you know. It's pretty, <laughs> a lot of fun, you know, so. Well, keep it going, man. I don't know where you find your energy, but keep it going. I don't either, <laughs> but I like it. Okay. Thanks. So there you are. Isn't that guy great? His storyteller? I just, I, I imagined him while I was sitting there talking to him on, on Skype. I imagined him just sitting in some big high-backed smoking chair kind of a look. You know, because he's, and, he, and just dressed to the nines. If you've seen Gary dress, he, he, he looks, he's, he's just sharp. He's got his own style. I just figured him sitting back there, you know, in the pipe kind of a thing, just telling me these stories. Did you hear the music in the background? It was beautiful symphony music playing in the background. He, he just, I don't know. He just, I love not seeing the people when I'm talking to them because they get to paint these rosy pictures in my head about the setting. <sighs> cool guy. What a perspective. What a life. And he still gives a shit. And I love the comments about juniors. Oh, my God. I wish Gary Fisher were running for president. I really do. So there you go. Another episode in the can. I promise I'm going to try to keep him coming as often as I can. I'm I'm working on my next interview right now. We have some scheduling snafus, but hopefully we'll get it to make it in, in that one-week deadline. If I don't, fuck it. Send me an email. Fine. Bring it. Just keep it. It, may, it lets me know that you care, even if it is a little backhanded and mean we will catch you guys next week